it. All right. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10 today. We continue to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. We finished off chapter 9 last week, and uh, there's a lot happening in chapter 9. In fact, in fact, starting, I think, from chapter 9 is where you really start to see everything starting to ramp up. Um, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And so in chapter 9, we saw the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah there. And they're speaking to Jesus about what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. He's going there to die, going there to pay for the sins of the world. And so he's getting more uh, clear with his disciples about what's coming. He's told them that he's going there to, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, handed over, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise again on the third day. But they're still not getting it. We see that several times, and we're going to continue to see it. Um, but as I said, things are just continuing to ramp up. So in chapter 10, we again see a conflict coming from the religious leaders, and those are going to begin to become more frequent and more intense. And this one in chapter 10, I think it's, it's interesting because it's one that was an intense argument then and still is now. And it's one of those things that I want to enter into cautiously and be clear as we go through. Um, because in, in Mark's gospel, speaking on the subject of divorce, it's really a fairly short section. But I think it's an important one enough in our day and age that we understand where the Bible is coming from and the things that the Bible says about it, because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings. Um, so we're going to spend a little extra time on that today, and uh, then we'll get about halfway through the chapter, picking up some of the other important things that are going on here. So let's pray, and we will get into chapter 10. God, again, we thank you that um, you want to meet us here that we've come here to know you more, to understand your word, to be changed by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would accomplish your work in us today. Give us ears to hear. Help us to lay aside our ideas and opinions and all of the distractions that we might hear from you clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan, multitudes gathered to him again, and as, was his, as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept, but from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now again, uh, these religious leaders have come asking a question, but it is not out of sincerity. They don't want an answer. They're there to cause trouble. 
Uh, and it's in verse 2 and it says, they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And the idea is trying him, trying to catch him in his words, trying to trap him. Um, and like I said, it was just a big of topic back then, maybe in some ways bigger than it is now. Matthew adds an important part when he brings this all out. That their question is, could a man divorce his wife for just any reason? And that really is what the debate was about back then. There were two schools of thought that were taking place at the time of Jesus, and two very extremes. So one was uh, that it was only in the case of proven adultery. So it couldn't be that it was about uh, suspicion or one of the, the husband or wife were jealous. It was proven adultery. That was the only reason for divorce, in which scripture gives that provision. Um, but the second was that a man could divorce his wife for absolutely any reason at all. And, and what they pointed to is in the law where it says that if any uncleanness is found in her. And so uncleanness, they just said, well, it could be whatever. I, she burnt the toast. It's unclean. You know, bye. And, and not that that happened real often. Okay, I mean, it, it wasn't so much that divorce was common. It took place. But the idea of it, and that the man had that much power, gave them great, really the power of fear over their wives. Because again, to be sent out of a home in that day was very hard for people to work, for women to work. Um, and so they used it as a, as a way of uh, controlling by fear. Now, again, this question is a trap because this was a huge debate, not only among the religious leaders, but among the people because they, they didn't understand. They're like, well, okay, is it for any reason or is it for you know, just one thing or where does it all fit in? And these debates would go on and on. So by asking Jesus his opinion or what he thinks about this, they're asking him to pick a side. That's the trap, right? No matter what he says, one side's going to go, well, we don't agree with Jesus anymore. And the other side will say, well, we do, and it'll just cause division. And that's what the trap is. This is how they're testing him. Um, again, these guys don't care. They're just trying to cause trouble. And... Uh, and like I said, it is a big topic. It was big then, and it's big now. Not because Scripture is unclear about it, but because there's a lot of emotion, because there's a lot of, we've seen horrible things. We've known people in terrible situations. And I think there's a lot of questions still. There's like, well, okay, where does it fit? What does the Bible say exactly about this? So, again, we're going to take a little uh, time to get into it. Unfortunately, I think we live in a society that, in a lot of ways, sees marriage as disposable. That, hey, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Move on. I, uh, of course, I don't do a lot of weddings. I got to do both of my kids, or two of my kids' uh, weddings this year, which was awesome and super fun. Uh, but over the years, we, I've had people say, well, you know, we, we thought about these vows, we thought about those vows, and you kind of work out, customize the, the service for what they want. And I remember years ago, and, and they hadn't really thought about it, the husband and wife or the fiancé, people about to get married, they hadn't thought about what the vows were. But in the vows was, as long as we both shall love. And I was like, nope. Because <laughs> how long does that last? I mean, true love, honest love, goes 
continually in hard times and good times, right? It's a commitment. It's a choice. But the emotion of love, oh, it comes and goes all the time, right? And we live in a society that tends to look more on that emotion as being the end-all, be-all. So as long as we both shall love, we're good. And when we're not, then we're out. And, and that is not what it was meant to be. And I think that's what we need to come back to. This is what Jesus brings these people back to. Again, we can look at so many different things. It's easy for us to look at all of the garbage and the junk and, and horrible things that have happened. And we look at all of the, really the symptoms of the sinful world and how marriage in the world is, right? And, it, and it's heartbreaking. We look at the mess and the worst case scenarios. But Jesus takes them back to what it was meant to be. What God's intention was for a husband and for a wife. In verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, it's interesting. Again, I think that's a verse or what we hear in that. We're like, okay, I've heard that so many times. That sounds good. It sounds poetic. But understand that, especially in the Hebrew culture, the relationship of the husband, the wife, and the child was an intense bond. And in some ways, and we certainly see it in circumstances today, but even more so back then, that even when that child was grown and out of the house, the parents would still kind of rule over them, right? That's our responsibility. And so... By bringing this out, Jesus is, going, is, is saying, look, it, marriage changes your relationship. That the husband, or the husband and wife, when they have a child, there's a day coming when that, their responsibility, it isn't removed, but it's diminished. It's dropped into a lower category. And when that child marries, that marriage becomes the priority. It has a greater power than even the mother and the father had in that person's life. They're to leave mother and father and be joined to one another, forming a new family. And again, just is, it's being brought out with the understanding that it is that powerful, that it changes the, the bond of that relationship. Again, it's important that we understand where marriage came from. Marriage was not invented by us. It isn't mankind's idea. It's not man's legal system or moral code. God himself established it there in the Garden of Eden. It is a supernatural joining. And it is designed and put together by him. I think, again, too often people look at marriage as being simply a legal contract of cohabitation and responsibility. And, and if that's as far as, as a, a people, any people sees that contract, well, then, yeah, it's easily made. It's easily broken, right? Just like any business contract. But it's so much more, as I said. God had put it together, and he's meant it to be far more. Uh, it is meant to be a... Well, the contract doesn't have the right word. Covenant does right? It is a covenant. And it's interesting. So I did this study years ago. Fascinating. If you go through the Old Testament, it's not all in one place. It's kind of scattered throughout. 
there are the steps of forming a blood covenant, right? Marriage fulfills them all. It is a supernatural event, blood covenant, not easily broken. And I, anytime I meet with people who are about to get married, I tell them again and again, this is to be entered into soberly, carefully. Because right up until the point you say, I do, you can say, I don't. But when you say, I do, man, it's on. It has got to be taken seriously. Um, now, one of the questions that comes up, and I think this was kind of the question of the people at the time of Jesus, right? Well, if, if, okay, we understand it's serious, it's by God, he's created it, so then why is there provision for divorce allowed in the Old Testament? Why, why did it even come up that Moses said if an uncleanness is found that you can send her away? Um, and Jesus' statement is, in verse 5, because of the hardness of your hearts, that he wrote this precept. In other words, again, it still wasn't what God had, in, had planned. It wasn't that God went, oh, you know what? They need an, they need an exit, so I'm going to you know, write one in. It's because of the hardness of our own hearts. It's because of our own sin nature. It's because of the own damage that we do, and that at some point, it is, it is too much damage. And again, the questions that always come up, what about... Divorce and remarriage. What about the case of adultery? What about when there's abuse, but there's no adultery? Um, again, I think coming back to what God had intended marriage to be. First of all, before a marriage is, is brought together into that covenant, right? That's that seriousness to it. If we understand what God created it for, it's not just romance and we're going to be happy forever. I mean, of course that's true, but, you know, all of the other things that we look at, like, what am I getting myself into kind of questions with this person for the rest of my life? It needs to be approached understanding what God created it to be and what it means for us individually. Um, and then when we're there, man, God's plan for us as much as possible is that we seek reconciliation with one another marriage is hard relationships with people are hard and there's going to be difficulties there's going to be trials there's going to be things you never planned for that come along and and god's desires that we would reconcile if it is at all possible but unfortunately it is not always possible and i, and I don't say that lightly okay i guess Always when I teach on this subject, and it's going through the Gospels, we teach it at least once or twice as we go through each Gospel. But my concern is that sometimes there are those people that hear whatever they want to hear, and, and they'll go, well, Pastor Jack said that there was a reason for divorce, you know. And if, and if they're already looking for that excuse, they'll try and find one here. So I'm, I'm trying to close that door as much as I can, but understand that there are those times where, man... Reconciliation cannot be made. Um, again, there's the one excuse, or there's the one side that's looking for any excuse that sees marriage as being somewhat disposable. But then I've seen the other extreme that says, you know what, there's nothing worse than divorce. It's the worst, most horrible thing ever. No, it's not. And again, I, I don't say that lightly. But I know over the years, Candy and I have spent 
hours and hours and hours with people that have gone through terrible times in their marriage. And our, our heart is to always see them get reconciled. But there have been some, not many, but there have been some, where we were so concerned with one or the other in that marriage that either they were going to take their own life or that their life was going to be taken. And that's worse than divorce. But the abuse had become so much, and I'd seen it, I've seen it with men and I've seen it with women, it had become so much where it was like, you have got to get out. And I believe there is a biblical principle for that. For, so first of all, Scripture is clear. In the case of adultery, yes, a divorce is understandable. And I believe that's also part of the hardness of our hearts. There are things that happen that you're just like, I just can't forgive. I know I, can't, I need to. Eventually I can. But again, that's one example. I think probably the greatest example. Um, Paul gives a couple examples. And so... The first is, I'm going to give the verse and the context that it's in, and I believe it, it points to a principle that's important we understand. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, Paul is talking there about, in the case of a believer marrying a non-believer, right? And at first he says, look, if the non-believer is willing to stay, great, stay together. Who knows what the Lord's going to do? Maybe the non-believer is going to get saved. And, you know, so there's this encouragement to stay together if possible. But if a non-believer leaves, he says this, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15 says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, the key in that verse is the phrase, the Greek phrase is used for under bondage. It means you are 100% in or 100% out. There's no gray area there. So the idea is either you are free to get married or you're not. If you're under the bondage of marriage, then you're not free to, to get married. But if that person departs, you're no longer under that bondage, right? So there's the second reason. Adultery, if a non-believer leaves. But I think it also points to a principle. Second scripture um, and I think this applies in the case when there's abuse. And I don't just mean not getting along. I think uh, the word abuse is thrown around a lot, right? Everybody knows that that's kind of the hot button topic or whatever. There's somebody who goes, well, I'm being abused. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, let's save you. And then you find out, like, they didn't make the dinner you like? That's what you're saying abuse is? Or, or you guys didn't, couldn't agree on a, a movie to watch? Or there's, there's disagreements that suddenly get painted as abuse. I'm talking about real, honest, mental or physical abuse. And I believe that this is what this points to. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is actually talking about caring for the elderly. I want to keep it in context and not try and miss that part. But he says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, meaning his own family, especially for those who are in his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, again, Paul's talking about taking care of elderly parents. Just basic needs, caring for them, taking care of whatever they need. And he's saying, look, if you're rejecting that, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've dismissed your responsibility to the people who have depended upon you. The principle of that is what's important. Because I think 
If it applies to elderly parents, it applies to an even greater degree within marriage. Not only just neglect, but put upon that abuse. They are worse than an unbeliever. And someone in that case is not subject to be under that bondage. Again, I do not say that lightly. And I don't say it as an ex- to give someone an excuse to get out. But it is better than seeing somebody take their own life or lose their life, holding on to the idea that they must remain no matter what. Now, Jesus makes it clear that just even the disciples are, are like, man, we don't even know how to process this. There's a lot, right? So they ask Jesus. They're like, what does this all mean? How does, you know, and he seems very cut and dry. Now, this is the mistake that I made when I was first teaching is that I took this, just that one little part that Jesus says that a person divorces their wife and remarries, or if she divorces and remarries, they're in adultery. And and not considering the context of the entire rest of the Bible, right? And so that's what I wanted to do today, is rather than just focus on that one little thing, because it can seem very black and white, very cut and dry, but there, the Bible has more to say about divorce than that. But I also think Jesus is telling the disciples this in such a cut and dried way that once again they understand this is so important. This is not to be taken lightly. This is to be entered into with the absolute soberness and conviction of what God had planned and has planned still for marriage. All right, verse 13. It says, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up into his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here in the midst of um, the intensity growing, like I said, Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, and, and things are intensifying, and To me, it's this cool contrast where these parents bring their kids to Jesus, and they're like, hey, could you just pray for our kids? (laughs) Which, it's one of those things, I know I say this a lot, but when I get to heaven, I I really want to meet some of these kids, right? (laughs) It's like, what did Jesus pray for you, and how did that come about? Because you know whatever blessing he prayed on them, it happened, right? 
Now, the disciples see this, and again, probably because they think, well, Jesus is too important, or he's too busy, or we're, we're on, getting on the road, we're making our way out of town. They, they tell the kids and the parents, get out of here, leave Jesus alone. And again, I love the fact that Jesus is just like, no, that is not going to happen. Bring all the kids here, right? You know, just I love that he makes time. And, and in fact, he's pretty stern with the disciples. And it says, and when he saw it, he was greatly displeased. You don't read that very often, especially when it comes to disciples. I mean, we assume there was plenty of times he was annoyed, but, or I do. <laughs> but, but that he was greatly displeased. In other words, you guys are so far off track with what you're doing right now. That them going, nope, get these kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time. And he's like, you are completely not representing me correctly. Greatly displeased. And said, let the little children come to me. Um, do not forbid them. Now, whatever the disciples thought was, whatever their motive was, um, what I think is important here is that we understand that anything that would block the way from anyone, really, but children specifically, is greatly displeasing to the Lord. Anything. And, and I, we go, well, yeah, okay, that's obvious. That, that makes sense. But I think it's, it's important we understand what anything could be. Because I've, I've been in churches where they're like, you know what? Kids aren't going to Sunday school. Everybody stays in service. And, and the kids learn to just tune out the gospel. They hear it. You just watch them. You just, just, their eyes are kind of rolled back in their head. And, 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 and you're like, why don't you have a Sunday school here? Or why don't you let your kids go to Sunday school? Because they don't need it. They're gonna... you got to be careful because you might be getting in the way of getting those kids to Jesus. You might actually be blocking them from knowing who Jesus is. And that is greatly displeasing to the Lord. I, one of the things I absolutely love, we've got such an amazing Sunday school staff. They're just the best people and have such a heart for kids. But one of the things I love about it is no matter what grade they're working with, whatever age range they're working with, everybody's got this understanding that, that we, we meet the kids individually right where they're at. Right? We don't, well, we use curriculum sometimes, and we do use different things. We just know that each kid's different. And some kids come in, and they don't know anything. Maybe they haven't been to church, and that's fine. We'll just meet them right there. Other kids, man, they grew up in church, and they can tell the Bible stories better than we can. And so they kind of become like teacher's assistants, and they get to help out. And, and we try and fit them where they fit rather than make them fit because we don't want anything to hinder them. We don't want anything to get in the way to stand between them and Jesus. And, uh, and I love it. We are so blessed. These guys, men and women working behind the scenes, you guys, <laughs> that take care of the kids. And, and I love talking with the kids after church. You know, what did you guys do in Sunday school? And they're like, oh, it was fun. We did this, and we heard this story, and they'll tell me what went on. I love it. It's fantastic. Now, Jesus uh, uses the kids as an example, and we've seen him do this before. And it's really challenging us and challenging the disciples that were there that day or the crowd, everybody that was there. As he speaks to the kids and says, for such as the kingdom of God. You want to enter into the kingdom of God? These guys actually know how. And there's, there's something cool. I think, first of all, there's a misunderstanding we have because sometimes people will talk about children and like, oh, aren't they just perfect? And aren't they they're just absolutely innocent? No evil in them? No, that's wrong. 
you know, they're just short little sinners. <laughs> they haven't grown tall enough yet. They'll get there. But there's still plenty that we can learn. I just want to be clear that Jesus isn't saying children are perfect, right? Some parents think that they're wrong, just so you know. <laughs> but kids are a great example to us um, for humility, for trust, for being teachable, right? These are great things. But I think there's something even more specific than that, than what Jesus is talking about, because remember why the kids were brought there. It says uh, that Jesus might touch them, and the idea is that he might lay his hands on them and bless them. It was very common for rabbis to have kids brought to them by the parents, and the rabbis would lay their hands on the kids and, and pray a blessing over them. And so that's what's happening here. And they're brought there that they might receive a blessing. Verse 15 says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. As adults, we are not good at receiving. We want to work for it. We want to prove our worth. We don't want people giving us help. We don't want people giving us compliments. We want to earn it. And, and the problem is, is that we can never work hard enough to earn those things. And we can never work hard enough to earn God's blessing. And so we're constantly overcomplicating. We're constantly second-guessing. And because we see ourselves as being unworthy, we're just constantly beating ourselves up. But a child is happy to receive. A child will receive a blessing, a compliment, a toy, some help. There's an honesty to a child going, sure, I'll, great. You know, they're, they're not trying to work for it. They're not trying to prove it. And I believe that's what Jesus is pointing to specifically here because he makes the point of whoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven. It is by grace that we receive salvation, that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. We will never work for it. We will never earn God's blessing. And when we understand that, and we have that heart of a child going, Lord, I just want what you have for me. I want you to bless my life, bless my family. And I know I don't deserve any of it. There's a great freedom and a great joy when we learn to receive God's blessing. Um, and not just as, as we think about receiving grace, receiving our salvation. God's a good father that just wants to bless. And I think sometimes we forget that. That he just likes to give because he wants to give you joy. So often, God will pour out a blessing on our life, and we start overanalyzing it. Well, why do I have this? Is it because I'm going to need it to do something else and really important? Am I going to have to invest this or change this or, or somehow give it, to, give it away to somebody else? And again, I just picture God going, I just wanted to make you happy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I know that for me, especially when our kids were little, one of my greatest joys uh, was to do things that would surprise my kids, Right? When I remember Hannah had this little octopus, this little orange octopus. She loved it. Its name was Happy. And she would lose Happy constantly. 
And so she, she didn't freak out. She'd go to bed without Happy if she needed to. But she would always like, like, I lost Happy. I can't find him. And so when I would come across Happy, usually behind the couch or under the couch or something like that, I would set Happy up so that when she came out of her room, he would see, she would see him right away, right? And so I wouldn't put him in the bed. I'd wait till she would come out, right? I wanted her just to go, Happy! And she would every morning. It's hilarious. I loved it. And I think that's... What, even more so is how the Lord wants to work in our lives. But we miss it because we overanalyze it. God brings something good into our lives, and, and, and we should just be like, happy. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. That's awesome. I love it. And, and just praise him for his goodness. Right? He's not always out to give us some teachable, teachable moment. He just loves to bless his kids. Now, Right after this, Jesus uh, is approached by this young man who comes running up to him and, and uh, calls him good teacher. He says, good, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Um, this young man, very interesting to me because he seems to have just about everything together as far as the world could, could give him. He's wealthy, he's young, he seems godly because he wants, understands that uh, there's the importance of eternal life. We find out also that he has power. He's called a ruler. Um, he's got a lot going for him. But he also knows that he's lacking something. That though he's grown up and he's kept the commandments and he's done the things, he's just like, there's something missing. For all that I've done, all that I've, I've accomplished, I know that I do not have eternal life. And he asked Jesus, what, what do I have to do? Now, first of all, Jesus... Uh, Initial response seems a little odd. In verse 18, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Um, now, Jesus is not denying that he is good. He's also not denying that he's God. He's actually making this guy make a decision. He's bringing him to a point to understand, if you're calling me good, then you're calling me God. Now, again, that probably would have blown the guy's mind. Or maybe it just went right past him. But it's the setup he needs to understand that the answer he's going to get is a lot more intense than he's ready for. So he needs to understand that God is good, even with this hard answer that's coming. Right? Have you ever found yourselves there? Where you're praying for something, Lord, Lord, I really want this. Oh, I think this is going to be great. And, and, and the Lord is just like, there's an answer coming, but it's not the one you expect. And you're going to have to trust me because it's going to be hard. Right? Here this guy comes with all of these things that he's done and who he is and all of his power and money and influence. And, uh, and it's, it's pretty impressive, right? I mean, Jesus tells him to keep the commandments, and he says, oh, yeah, I've done all that. Now, first of all, nobody, including Jesus, goes, you liar. You know, <laughs> you have not kept those commandments since you were a kid. Jesus doesn't correct him. In fact, it says that he looked at him and loved him. That Jesus sees this guy, he sees his sincerity. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's, he also sees that this guy has accomplished so much, and he is missing it. He's missing what's important. He's attained a lot, and he's still so lost. And, and certainly we've known people like that too. You know, people who are kind and they're generous and, and even moral as far as they understand and, and, and they're hard workers and they've accomplished great things and then it comes down to salvation and they're just like 
yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand why Jesus is important. And, and, and my heart breaks. I understand this. Like, you look at them with love because you're like, man, you've done so much, and you're missing out on the thing that matters most. The hard answer comes. Jesus said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come and take up your cross and follow me. This guy is one of the few, other than the 12, that Jesus said, follow me. That invitation did not go out to everybody. We saw a legion who went, let me follow you. And he said, no, go back to your city, right? Here, this young man is given the 13th invitation to follow Jesus as a disciple. And again, breaks my heart. He went away sad. For his possessions were great. He couldn't leave them behind. Verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered, Again I say to them, and again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished among themselves. Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but with God, for with God all things are possible. And then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all to follow you. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or land for my sake and the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, as Jesus gives this to the disciples, their response is important. Because they hear that rich people have a very, very difficult time entering heaven. Now, in their mind, in, in the Jewish mindset, the rich people had it all figured out. Because they could go and buy all the animals for the sacrifice. They could do all the things. They could have the best of whatever they were going to make as an offering. And the poor could not. And that's because the Pharisees really pushed that idea that basically the poor almost couldn't be saved. And so when Jesus goes, no, it's not the poor that we have a problem with. It's, it's the rich. <laughs> it, the rich people can't enter. It's, it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. Now, again, this is one of the reasons their response is important. They're like, well, if the rich can't be saved, it's impossible. Who can be saved then, Right? Because there's a teaching out there, and actually uh, it seems like it's come from some of the tour guides in Jerusalem, where they tell this story that in the city gate of Jerusalem, there used to be a small door just big enough for a person to go through. And that if you showed up after the gates were closed at night with a camel, you would have to unload all of your stuff, take it through the door, and then they could get the camel down on its knees real low, and, and they would drag it through that door. And they'll say, and that's what Jesus was talking about here. 
No, it's not. <laughs> First of all, there's no archaeological evidence that that door ever existed. And the second is, it would completely change the meaning of what Jesus is teaching here. Because it's not impossible, it's just annoying and hard. But it's common, right? So what Jesus is saying, it's easier to get a literal camel through the little, the little, little, I can't say it, an eye of a needle. And you can do it, but you got to grind them up real small and just a little bit at a time. That's how hard it is. That's the message that Jesus is giving. That it is an overwhelming fear and dread. Then who can be saved? Right? Jesus' answer is, with God, with man, all these things are impossible. And while they're talking about salvation, right? Nobody can work for it. Nobody can sacrifice enough. Only through God can we be saved. Only He is the one that makes these things possible. But I think it also covers a lot of the other things that Jesus has been talking about and teaching in this part of the chapter. Real strong relationships like marriage. I don't know if people do it without Jesus. Because in our strength, in our wisdom, without him, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible, right? Reconciliation where we don't think it can happen. New life, new joy, amazing, wonderful things come from the God who can do all things. For us, I think it kind of comes down to what the question that Jesus asked the rich young ruler. If you're saying I'm good, then you're saying I'm God. And for us, when that trial comes or that we just think this is an impossibility, it can't happen. Is he good? And is he God? And are we his kids? Because if we are, he wants to bless us. He wants to take us through. He wants to do amazing things. There's no reason for us to hold ourselves back from him. He is good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your goodness.